0: of
1: Welcome to Rave Dad's Diary, the show that explores the globalization of electronic dance music from the perspective of a rural Alberta boy turned raver. I'm your host and resident Rave Dad, Paul Brooks. Brave Dad's Diary broadcasts on CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary at the University of Calgary campus and community radio station located on Treaty 7 land. I acknowledge the traditional territories of the people of the Treaty 7 region in southern Alberta, which includes the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Siksika, the Pagani, and Kaina First Nations, the Sutina First Nation, and the Stony Nakoda. The city of Calgary is also home to Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Welcome to episode 26 of Rave Dad's Diary. 26 episodes means Rave Dad's Diary has been on air for six months. I'm feeling pretty good about that. Today, I'm speaking with Vivian Host, a.k.a. Star Eyes. She's producing a podcast in Brooklyn, New York, called Rave to the Grave. It's so good. Stay tuned to hear our conversation and clips from a couple of episodes. You're listening to Rave Dad's Diary on 90.9 FM CJSW. My name is Paul Brooks. My guest is Vivian Host, a.k.a. Star Eyes. She's a journalist, journalist. DJ, producer, promoter, and the creator of one of my favorite podcasts called Rave to the Grave. Welcome, Vivian.
0: Thank you for having me, Rave Dad, and thank you for listening to Rave to the Grave.
1: I am very excited to speak to you because I appreciate your work as, as a journalist working in in dance music, and I also like your music, and I was a huge trouble in bass fan when I was just getting into dancing and and partying myself.
0: Awesome. Yes. I miss Trouble and Bass. Um, For those of you listening who aren't familiar, that was uh, my old DJ crew and record label and uh, that I was in with some of my best friends and we're actually celebrating our 15 year anniversary this year or next year. Anyway, it's about 15 years since we started so um, so some things may be in the works I'm not sure yet but either, either way uh, one of the one of the most fun times I've ever had in my life being in that crew
1: I have a trouble and base uh, tank top that is it's so melted but it's still in my closet somewhere and uh, gotta dust that off for the anniversary uh, party or stream. For anybody, for the uninitiated, can you describe Rave to the Grave podcast? Who's the show for?
0: Well, the show is for, first of all, ravers, past, present, and future. People that want to reminisce about the good old rave times. People who are currently... Um, partying like maniacs or wishing they were partying like maniacs. They're probably not because of COVID. I hope you're not. Uh, And people who um, maybe aren't even old enough to really get out of the house yet, but are um, interested in rave culture and electronic dance music. And it's also for everyone that is just interested to hear kind of people's life stories and get a little bit of a window into what um, electronic music and rave culture is like around the world um so hopefully it's interesting to even to people who are not diehard ravers like you and i um that's the goal anyway
1: i started making this show rave dad's diary in about october of 2020 and it was a period of time when i was personally pretty down in the dumps things were seeming kind of bleak and i started making the show as a way as an excuse to kind of talk to friends and seek a path forward i saw rave to the grave emerge around a similar time last year and i'm wondering what were the circumstances that led to you starting to make the show
0: so i actually have always thought that rave music and dance music culture doesn't really get too much of the kind of coverage that I would like to see. It's way better than it used to be, but it's still not at the point that I would like to see where it gets kind of, uh, taken seriously. And there's still a lot of artists that for whatever reason, and a lot of, um, you know, figures within clubland that for whatever reason don't don't really get their dew or their flowers while they're alive anyway. Um, And, you know, I wanted a place that we could tell the kind of stories that people tell me at the club at three in the morning, (laughs) Um, you know, and we're standing in a corner of a club and people are telling me the wildest stuff. And I said, I wanted a podcast where some of those legendary stories could be told on record and, Often it's far enough after the actual fact that we're not really incriminating anyone, or, you know, people are fine with sharing those stories. Um, But I also just didn't think that there was a podcast that was doing this exact thing. There are some great um, podcasts about dance music, but nobody was really exactly talking to the people that I thought were interesting. So around the same time, um, my engineer from Red Bull Radio. Um, I used to work for Red Bull Music Academy and I used to do a daily radio show. And one of the engineers um, started working at Rockefeller Center at a historic studio called the Newsstand Studios. And he asked me if I wanted to do a podcast. And then I said, OK, <laughs> it's a lot of work, but OK. And um, funny enough, that started before COVID. The, I think I recorded two interviews Um, AC Slater and Jubilee. And then uh, AC Slater, that was his last gig of tour before lockdown started. And Jubilee, I think it was like a day or two before lockdown. Um, We did that interview. I played like two DJ gigs and then all of a sudden you couldn't go out of the house anymore. So it kind of took on a new meaning um, during the COVID era, because like you, I realized that this is my whole culture and my life and where my friends are. And, you know, I feel more comfortable in a club or rave than I do at like a dinner party or (laughs) nearly anywhere else. Like if there was a zoo, my habitat would be a club (laughs) where I lived in the zoo, you know? So um, it kind of took on a new meaning to me um, where and a new importance to me, I guess, to do Rave to the Grave not only am being able to connect to people because I wasn't seeing any people out and I was only talking to like my nearest friends and I missed those kind of club conversations. But, you know, also as a way of archiving things and having things not get lost. um, You know, a lot of people were passing away. A lot of people are getting sick. And, you know, a lot of club nights might not come back. So it was like a way of, documenting that which documentation is pretty important as a journalist and just like to history. Um, And also like everybody else, I was super bummed out and I think this has kind of given me a little bit of hope, like a little bit of renewal of like, why am I in this whole thing in the first place? (laughs) You know, like why have I been involved in electronic dance music my whole life and rave culture my whole life? Is it important? What's important about it? What's fun about it? What can we do when it comes back to make sure that it's, it's cool and exists and is diverse and that we're, we go to parties we actually like with DJs we actually like? I,
1: I like this all resonates with me so strongly. And, uh, you know, it, it uh, that that sentiment, um, some of the sentiments you expressed are. Are, are, you know, some of the things that really pushed me to, to start making uh, the, my podcast. However, I'm in Canada, which is, uh, you know, not as densely populated in the United as the United States and doesn't have as as much of a, you know, the music industry is not as nearly as developed. Um, and you're making this show. You're making Rave to the Grave in New York City, which is so culturally significant. How does like your location in, in the U S uh, like play into the show and your access to, to folks?
0: Well, I mean, I think being in New York city, you obviously have greater access to people than nearly anywhere (laughs) else in the States. Um, by the same token though, one of the things that I've experienced just being in the U S is that, um, is that dance music and electronic music and rave culture uh, has been pretty dismissed over time as compared to Europe and the UK where it's kind of seen as like um, very culturally relevant. The music is sort of seen as important. It's a huge tourism driver. The governments of you know London and Berlin and some other cities recognize that you know, the electronic music culture is an important part of their history and their music and like how they make money (laughs) as cities. Um, The U.S. has not like been treated the same way. And so I think a lot of artists and a lot of stories kind of get lost because, um, you know, we don't have the same media access and we don't have the same um, support of the arts and stuff like that. So actually, you know, I kind of look at it as more of like a stateswide problem. Even though obviously, sitting in New York, you're really connected to the lineage of dance music culture from its very beginnings. I mean, there's mm-hmm. still there's still like a bunch of people around from the Paradise Garage era in the '70s. They still do reunion parties. There's these giant. Um, deep house parties in the park where you can see people in their sixties and seventies house dancing, lofting (laughs) the same way they were doing when they were young and, you know, New Jersey's across the way. They've got a huge house music history uh, up into Jersey club, hip hop, everything else. So, you know, yes, I, the access is crazy, but, uh, for me, it's really about trying to tell maybe some of these untold stories, or also tap into people that haven't been interviewed 400 trillion times. Um, <laughs> yeah, my I mean, my work as a journalist has mostly been about trying to highlight these underrepresented genres of music, underrepresented artists, trying to get some new voices and some new stories in this in this zone of electronic music or dance music. And also like the U S is so split between EDM and like underground dance music. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, we all kind of came from the same place. It's just that, uh, things really split off. So I'm kind of trying to make the, the room a little bit bigger, I guess I would say
1: on, on your website, you, say that the 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 global movement of you know this dance music subculture is is vital and resonant but that it's often ignored dismissed and and trivialized and you're 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 sort of getting at this but uh and and i understand why dance music is vital because i am i've 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 been in it and i've been very privileged to like work and live and breathe in in that realm but for somebody who's not in 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 that scene or hasn't been immersed in it like make the case for why uh it it is vital that we tell these stories and document them
0: well so the dictionary definition the dictionary definition of vital is actually two things one of the things is full of energy i don't think anyone can uh can say that dance music electronic dance music isn't full of energy but i do think it's this huge wave that people thought was going to explode and go away and it's actually like a snowball where it's just been added to and picked up picked up steam over the years like you know since synthesizers were invented and started to be popularized you know, it's really the music of technology, and I think at this point in, you know, culture, it's a canon. Just like you could talk about jazz being a canon, or hip hop, or rock music, um, which has all these different subgenres and different kind of factions within it, different sounds. So, I think at this point, it it is like a very legitimate genre, and it's still continue all of the things that happen. In the electronic music underground, musically and in like the culture as well, end up influencing the mainstream. Like, so many things kind of bubbled up in the underground dance music culture that ultimately like change culture and society, whether you're talking about, um, you know, sexuality, whether you're talking about, Racial diversity, whether you're talking about fashions that came from the underground and then became mainstream, you know, there's a lot of artists and a lot of people looking to the underground culture for like what we're going to be doing in the future. And if you listen to all the pop music now, it's definitely, you know, like so influenced by all kinds of electronic music. Like the du- new Dua Lipa album is like a house music album. And that's like one of the biggest albums in the world. You listen to all the modern pop music, like Charlie XCX and all that's totally influenced by like Sophie and, you know, AG Cook and all these people from underground dance music. So from from a cultural perspective, like it's hugely important. Um, and then like, and just in terms of rave culture and like illegal parties, I mean, You know, the main thing I heard growing up was like that I was going to grow out of this, that this was just like doing drugs in a dark room and was meaningless and it was just partying. And when are you going to stop partying, (laughs) And you know, become a productive member of society? And like, this has been my job. Like if I didn't go to raves, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have had a career as a journalist. Um, So it is important, and it's been important. It's how I found all my friends. It's how I learned about different people and different kinds of people, and uh, you know, just expand my worldview. And I think it has the same significance to a lot of other people too. Like clearly, it does. When I interview people for Rave to the Grave, like this is also other people's whole life and has changed their whole outlook on the world. So that's why I think it is important and it is a way that I met a lot of people from different cultures and different backgrounds that I probably would never have met if it weren't for this music and going to parties.
1: You're listening to Rave Dad's Diary and my guest is Vivian Host, AKA Star Eyes. And we're talking about her podcast Rave to the Grave. Vivian, you talk to some really fascinating people on your podcast, and I'm curious, uh, how do you choose your your topics and your interview subjects?
0: Well, in my perfect world, Rave to the Grave will ultimately be hundreds of episodes, and I will speak to people around the world. And there's definitely some interviews coming up with people in Italy and South Africa and different parts of Asia. So I'm on my way there. But in the beginning, I started Rave to the Grave talking to people that I knew personally who I knew had crazy, funny, interesting stories or interesting histories as DJs and producers and members of the rave culture, um, legendary characters. And it, you know, it really just starts with the stories that I think are interesting and what I want to hear about. So you know, in the case of the Bill Bernstein episode, I wanted to talk to somebody that was at a large variety of clubs in the disco era, but also somebody that maybe wasn't totally only going to one club all the time or one or two clubs, but somebody that would have an overview of like, you know, at that time in New York, there were literally hundreds of clubs and people would go out, Nonstop. So I wanted to talk to somebody that might have an interesting perspective or overview on that. Bill Bernstein is a photographer, so it was became his kind of obsession to document the nightlife um, there, and you know, just other people along my course of interviewing people or running into people, they'll say like, "Oh, so have you ever talked to so and so about this?" I'm like, no, but um but i'd like to how about they come on my podcast i try to pick people too whose stories as just people i think would be interesting so people who grew up um in interesting places and you know then then their career took them to somewhere else or people who are really good at um, remembering stuff. I mean, that's, that's kind of a problem in the rave scene, right? It's like not everybody remembers all the stories because, uh, you know, drugs or <laughs> bad memory or they don't want to talk about it anymore. They're sick of talking about it. So also people who I think will be open enough to kind of tell me how it was from their from their perspective.
1: Well there's there's that saying about the 60s that if you actually remember the 60s you weren't there. So when you're talking to people about partying and people who partied like it was a job, uh, how uh how reliable are 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 some of the, the the memories or uh how do you uh kind of parse that out or does that as a journalist, um, I'm, I'm just curious, as a fellow journalist, when you're hearing these stories and it's maybe only one perspective.
0: I mean, look, like history is unreliable. And they say, right, that like history is just left to like who wanted to document it or who wanted to write about it and their bias and their perspective. Like, I'm sure if we took a time machine to the Civil War and we showed them what the textbook said about the Civil War, everybody would have a different you know, thing to say about like, oh, that's wrong because what actually happened was this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and I think that's, we all know that that's a problem with history books is that they haven't been diverse. They haven't shown a range of perspectives. They have mainly just been written by, you know, like white cis men that portrayed things or interviewed the people that they wanted to interview. And that became like, this is the history of native Americans in the U S or whatever it was, you know? So, I mean, yeah, history is totally unreliable. Um, and you know, I'm, will have people on the show where you're like, I don't know if that really happened. (laughs) Is this, (laughs) is this story true? And you know, that is also like club culture. That is rave culture. Like it's, takes all types you know the person that embellishes the tale, the person that tries to get it right down to the very last thing the person that has the amazing most amazing memory about everything that ever happened despite the fact that they've done more drugs than anyone else like it's really not you never know like who has the good memory honestly because it's it definitely doesn't have to do with like how hard you partied or not. Some of my friends that partied the hardest can, you know, tell me every little detail about what happened. So, you know, I think also like a lot of people, they've told these stories hundreds of times. It's like the oral history that they've talked about with their friends, but like no one outside of that group ever got to hear it. So I think I'm, I'm lucky in that. I'm covering times that there are still people alive and they're not so long ago that people don't remember them. Um, They're fairly recent history. Um, But yeah, it's like the, you know, I try to get people that I think are genuine and authentic and are gonna like tell it how it really is. But is there gonna be some embellishment? Is there gonna be some grandeur, some whatever? Sure, that's part of the nightlife. (laughs) <laughs> That's, that has to be in there, too, you know?
1: You're listening to Rave Dad's Diary, and my guest is Vivian Host, a.k.a. Star Eyes, and we're talking about her podcast, Rave to the Grave. I want to play a clip from your episode uh, featuring Bill Bernstein. I'm wondering, how did you get in touch with this person? Do they have a publicist? How do you reach out and and pitch your... your uh, desire to speak to them
0: I mean in the case of Bill Bernstein I just enter I just emailed his email on his website I mean he's still a working photographer he sells prints and you can get in touch with him pretty easily um, it's kind of a mix I mean I've been a music journalist for over 20 years so there's definitely people who I know they're PR person, or I know them personally, but it's a mix. I mean, the thing I would say to any aspiring journalists out there, or anyone aspiring to, you know, contact people, is that you kind of just have to try. Like a lot of people are reachable now, their email is in their Twitter bio, you can DM them. And it's really about how you approach people and what your idea is and what your intent is. Um, And some of it's just luck. Sometimes people don't want to do something. Then you ask them again a month later and they're in a better place and they want to do it. So (laughs) you just like, you literally never know what you're going to get, but you have to at least try and you know, you get shot down. Just there's another person with a bunch of great nightlife stories waiting in the wings. There's thousands of them. And part of the rape to the grave thing also is also not only interviewing DJs and producers and artists, but also interviewing club kids and club managers and all of these people that are important to nightlife dancers, uh, performers, people behind the scenes. You know, part of it is kind of drawing back the curtain on, hey, this is a whole culture that requires a lot of people to make it run, not only the DJs.
2: But I had never been able to get into Studio 54. I tried a couple of times. I stood in line outside with my hand waved and for an hour or so, and I could never get in. It was very, very hard to get into. That was kind of one of the things that was so interesting about the place, because Before then, there wasn't really that. It wasn't really the velvet rope and the line outside in many places that I can remember. So after the event was over, I decided that I wanted to hang out and see what like a regular night at Studio Fifty Four was like because I thought I'll probably never be able to get back in here again. And so I remember I bought some film from a photographer who was leaving and hung out in the the uh, balcony for about an hour, like hiding out in the shadows. So they didn't find me and throw me out. And then I just waited around and um, the crowd started to come in, the regulars started to come in and I stayed there like for hours and hours, just fascinated by what I saw. You know, what I saw was very visually interesting. As a photographer, just starting out and looking for something to photograph, you know, like a personal project, I thought what I'm looking at, what I'm seeing right in front of my eyes, is very visual and it's really interesting. It was a mixture of cultures, like marginalized cultures, subcultures, mainstream cultures. There was everything from you know, what they would call transvestites back then, which are now, you know, trans men and women, pre op, post op, transgender. There was the whole LGBT spectrum. On the dance floor along with kind of um you know a suit and tie crowd um an upscale white crowd with an african-american crowd with you know latin it was just an amazing mix of people that i had never seen before like under one roof it was that mix that really captured my imagination back then i must say the music some of it was good, some of it i really liked, but i wasn't that wasn't really where my head was at. And there were celebrities at Studio 54, but that wasn't really where my head was at either actually. My head was really into this cultural mix as a as a photographer who's really probably an anthropologist
1: at heart. You're listening to Rave Dad's Diary on 90.9 FM CJSW. My name is Paul Brooks. And we just heard a clip from the podcast Rave to the Grave featuring legendary photographer Bill Bernstein. Joining me over Zoom is the creator of Rave to the Grave, Vivian Host, a.k.a. Star Eyes. Vivian, how can people listen to Rave to the Grave?
0: Well, Rave to the Grave is available on Spotify, Apple Music, TuneIn, Amazon, nearly everywhere that you would listen to your podcast, Stitcher, of course. Um, you can also listen to it via the website, which is ravetothegrave.org. The website also has some extras, so ver- um, links to various things that we're talking about in the episode if you want to find out more. Um, especially if you're interested in reading books on rave culture or articles or finding out more about, you know, some of the kind of offhand things we refer to in each episode, uh, do check out rave to the grave.org. And you can also find us on Instagram at rave to the where I post historical photos and rave flyers and funny things people send me. If you have some great f- rave photos out there or you have some great rave stories, definitely get in touch, slide into the DMS at rave to the dot grave. And, um, I'm going to be debuting a feature pretty soon where people can call in and tell their own stories. So look out for the rave hotline and, um, get your stories ready.
1: I love it. I love that idea. I. Uh- you know, I I really uh, appreciate the the work you've done as a, as a journalist working for uh, Thump and uh, Accelerator, uh, the work you've done with Red Bull Radio, and basically like every music outlet. Uh, I, I want to get your thoughts on the role of journalism and music journalism uh, in in. The music industry right now, as we are going through, uh, you know, a, a period of what seems like very rapid change and uh, growth and whatnot, as it relates to uh, some very important, you know, social justice issues and issues about equality and and equity are, are being raised. Like, what is is your role as a, as a, as a journalist right now in, in all of that, do you think?
0: I mean, I think there's different types of journalists, but I consider my role to find out what's interesting and uncover it and sort of clear it up for people that may not know what it is, may have never heard of this genre before, may have never heard of this artist before. Um have never heard of this story that's kind of been buried in the underground and shed some light on it and hopefully get some attention on the artist or um you know, on a particular facet of culture or nightlife or something that that kind of has been not written about extensively already, hopefully. Um I think, you know, the whole landscape of music journalism and magazines and uh, blogs and whatever is like this constantly shifting thing. But I think there always is a place for curators and people who are kind of doing this job of being out talking to people, traveling around, looking for stuff, listening to music, and then sort of translating all of that into um, into a piece, into a um, podcast, into a video, whatever, for people who don't spend their lives doing that. And also, you know, talking about why certain things are important. I think one of the big problems that finally is being talked about in the journalism scene is a lack of diversity among the people who are the editors at publications and the writers that they're hiring, um, a lack of diverse voices. Again, the music journalism world has been very predominantly like straight, white, male. Um, And, you know, different... Having more diverse voices in the space and more diverse journalists means that you're, by by the nature of that, going to be covering different kinds of music, different kinds of artists. You're going to have a more rich and varied like content pool or whatever, rich and varied group of stories because people who are raised in different environments and in different ways have different things that they think are interesting or important. So I think we're finally seeing a little bit more attention to diversifying that space and that's very important also representation is very important if you never see any articles about people that look like you or people that are from where you're from or people that identify in the same way as you like you basically feel like written out of the culture written out of history even if you were you've been doing something important like it's kind of like it's sad but I think for a lot of artists, especially in the past, they feel like, well, I did all this stuff, but nobody ever wrote about me or posted about me or shown any light on what I did. So it's almost like it never happened. Mm. Um, And I think journalism now is trying to rectify some of that. Um, Yeah. I still think it, it has an importance, you know, as journalists, like we put stuff into words and paint a picture that, you know, like in, in our own way in the same way a photographer does in the same way somebody who shoots film does, we just do it with like the written word or in my case, the spoken word. (laughs) So, um, so yeah, that's kind of my role. And I've, I've always been the one, you know, like I'm really interested in like underground urban genres of the U S. So I'm really interested in like Miami base and footwork and, um, and not just of the U.S., but the U.K. also. Footwork, jungle, uh, Jersey Club, Baltimore Club, Atlanta base, um, Chicago footwork, Chicago ghetto house—all uh, of these genres that like never got any coverage in like mainstream. That they, they wouldn't get covered in Rolling Stone. They would probably, up until a couple years ago, would have never been in something like Pitchfork. And so, a lot of my career has been devoted to making sure that those artists also get serious stories written about them and legitimate interviews and not jokey interviews or not like, um, not just like some EDM blog that's like asking like fanzine questions, but really, really like giving artists that deserve it a serious interview as well. I think with the demise of, magazines and funding for magazines and advertising and stuff like that. And the subsequent rise of the internet and all of these technological tools that enable you to do everything yourself and kind of made everything much easier from like graphic design to audio editing, to self-promotion, etc. Um, I really think that individual people as curators are more important than they ever were before. And some of these whole structures of um, who's in power and who gets to decide who's writing and who gets to decide who works here and who's qualified to like have an opinion on X, (laughs) Y, Z. Like those structures are eroding, which makes it a good time for people to get heard And, you know, I, in some ways I grappled with like, do I need to have a podcast? But then I just thought, well, nobody has lived this certain life that I've lived and nobody else is really doing what I want to do. So like, why not me? (laughs) You know, I mean, like, you know, Tiga has a podcast that I think is really great, but he's mostly interviewing other famous DJ producers. And his podcast has like a very certain narrative arc. And I love to listen to it. But like what I was doing was not the same, is not the same thing he's doing. It's not the same thing that the other dance music podcasts, which there are very few um, that I've heard. Like no one's kind of coming at it from my angle. And like, I guess no one's me. So <laughs> that's what podcasts are about at the end of the day. I think it's a little you know, it's a little tough sometimes to put yourself as the front person, but if that's the way that the story gets told, then like, let's do it. You know, like you need to just, if there's something that is out there that you want to exist, then you have to make it right. If it doesn't exist because nobody else is going to make it like, that's why trouble and base existed is because there was no one who would book us to play Grime and UK Garage and weird jungle records and Baltimore club and every club was would only book you if you would play like italo disco or house and so we were like well we got to make our own party now otherwise we'll never DJ anywhere um you know it's the same kind of thing it's like as Harry DIY will tell you you have to do it yourself
1: (laughs) totally (laughs) and that like theme just keeps on coming back and that is just isn't that just rave culture yeah just doing it you see something that's not happening you want it to happen and you just you have to do it yourself or else it's not going to happen (laughs) it's you have to make it so
0: i feel like music cultures are like the most pure expression of creativity across all the mediums because you know you like develop your own music and your own musical tastes and then your own musical style. And then you've got people throwing events and then there's a fashion component. And then there's like, you know, graphic design and video and journalism. It's like rave culture. If you think about it, has all the things like contained within it. And it's a place that you could use your creativity in whichever way feels the most exciting to you or whichever ways, because most of the people I know involved in, in rave culture and electronic music, they, they're so multidisciplinary. Like they do, they make their own clothes and they do graphic design and they also make music and they might write sometimes. And, you know, they're filming videos with their GoPro and like, it's really amazing to me. COVID has shown also I've been blown away but how, by how many people are so creative and have so many skills. <laughs> I mean, Canada is a great example because you guys have all these DJs that are really good on Twitch. Mm. And they're basically running like their own TV studio <laughs> while DJing, while interacting with the chat, while cra- making their own graphics. I'm just like, yeah, shout out Four Color Zach and uh, Pete from Small Town DJs. They're doing, they're doing a lot.
1: <laughs> you are producing Rave to the Grave. You're writing, producing, hosting the thing by yourself. Is that correct?
0: I have an engineer named Joe Hazen that um, engineers this show for me. And he also uh, makes it sound really great. But I do the production, the interviews, the hosting and a large part of the editing also
1: that is a lot of work uh how how, what what is keeping you going through this experience what is motivating you to keep making this program
0: i mean i had this moment where i was editing the harry diy episode on the plane and i was just crying because he was explaining so beautifully his attitude towards club culture and how it's not about capitalism and it's really about freedom and, and kind of detailing all the beautiful things that he and I and everyone else has gotten out of the rave culture and the electronic music scene And, you know, it was really a moment where I realized that as much as I'm doing Rave to the Grave for other people and for to get other people excited about the same things I'm excited about or to give them a window into some of this stuff that I know about and I think is really fun and cool, like other people might have no access to like the Baltimore club scene of the late nineties and early two thousands. It's a very niche thing, you know, <laughs> but, but it's something that has influenced all this music. And I would like to let people know about it or, you know, the Midwest, the Midwest rave scene, like I have an episode coming up with Noncompliant, who's from Indianapolis, which I don't imagine is a place that a lot of people know about, <laughs> you know? So, um, so as much as it's about that, it's also about me and like renewing my sort of faith and my hope in in this and feeling, being able to feel that feeling of like that I have a global family um, in this rave culture, which I definitely do, but I haven't been able to feel that because we're basically all existing as like online avatars and have barely gotten to travel or see any friends or go to any parties or do any of that. So it's been a little bit of a lonely time. And I think, you know, I needed a little like re-up of energy and laughter and uh, reminiscing about the ridiculousness (laughs) of of this whole thing. And, um, you know, and also like just trying to get the motivation to continue on for the next whatever 30 years (laughs) or longer probably longer
1: (laughs) well i'm so glad that you're making this program i'm a big fan of rave to the grave and i hope you make many hundreds of episodes of it because it is important
0: i hope that i do too it's so much work but that's just the challenge is like finding finding the time to to do this in between all the other stuff i do but i was having a fun like reverie the other day about you know being like an 80 year old dj and producer um and wondering if we're going to see that you know like people like carl cox and and some of these folks Tong, like they're getting up there like uh so you know i i like i can't wait to have all the different generations of people on the podcast and you know and be able to to tell that range of stories and i'm super happy that you like the podcast and that you've been listening means a lot to me because i put a lot of work into it
1: star eyes we're going to end on a clip why, why don't we end on a clip from the uh, interview you were just talking about uh, that uh, brought, brought a tear to your eye. Can you set this up for us and uh, the, the, the person we're going to hear?
0: Okay, so this is probably one of my favorite, if not my favorite episodes so far of Rave to the Grave. It's with Harry Harrison from DIY Sound System who were one of the first, if not the first house music sound systems in the UK. Um, So they were throwing free parties all around the UK, um, playing acid house and techno and had a huge influence on just the way that uh, rave music and culture developed in the UK and beyond. Um, A bunch of their members went to San Francisco they like disseminated all over the globe: Ibiza, Goa, uh, Th- you know, Thailand, every Australia, everywhere, and really kind of sowed the seeds of what we know of as the rave culture today. Um, Harry is from the north of England. He has an amazing, self-deprecating sense of humor and accent, and. Um, has all the great stories despite being a legendary partier. (laughs) He still remembers a lot. And, you know, this was something when I was young, I was at the library and I was looking through NME and Melody Maker, which are these British um, newsprint indie rock magazines. And I saw a full page spread of all of these people. I mean, like hundreds of thousands of people partying in a field, And it had some crazy, super hype headline, you know, about it being illegal. And it was like Castle Morton Common, the police fighting these ravers and everybody going to this free party in a field with like 400,000 people. And I was just like, I want to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Like, and, you know, around the same time, I think I was uh, reading simon reynolds generation ecstasy and matthew collins altered state and you know like harry and diy sound system were talked about in there and there's so many things in that interview that are talked about that like i was looking at before i was really into this and i was like you know one day i'm gonna do that one day i'm gonna be in the rave culture And uh, so it's kind of, you know, amazing to talk about somebody that was in that was at Castle Morton Common and was in that picture I saw and, you know, can take me in a little time machine back to that back to that era. Brave. welcome to rave to the grave my guest today is harry diy one of the founding members of the seminal uk raving crew diy sound system who formed in 1989 in nottingham harry and fellow crew members like Diggs and woosh simon dk and emma threw some of the most notorious free parties and club nights in and around england throughout the 90s under the ethos that if you haven't paid you can't be ripped off Their collective mindset, fuck-off attitude, and disregard for the rules of the corporate music industry ultimately earned them the moniker The Most Dangerous People in the UK and fans the likes of the KLF and Bez. With releases on Warp and their own labels like Strictly for Groovers and DIY Discs, they cemented a druggy, chuggy, jazzy house sound that would travel the world and particularly take hold in San Francisco, where Harry and other DIY members lived for a time. With some speculating about a second summer of love that's going to happen after the pandemic, it seemed like a good time to talk about the first one. Welcome to Rave to the Grave. Welcome to Rave to the Grave.
3: Thank you, Vivian. It's nice to be here <laughs> in my home in Wales, in the UK. <laughs> as, you, as you mentioned in that intro, the, the underlying ethos of DIY, we were, we were a collective. Every magazine interview we ever did, every time there was photos, there was a lot. People always wanted one. They said, oh, we don't want to do a collective. We want to do one or two people on the front cover. and We just refused. So um, whether that was wise or not, I don't know. <laughs> But uh, so we were a collective, so we came from all over the place, is, is the truth. But I guess, technically, there was four core members of DIY. There was myself, Pete and Rick, who became Dix and Woosh, Simon, DK, and then there was a whole host of other DJs, Emma, Jack, Pip, Cookie, Dick, etc., etc. But just to keep it simplified, our base became Nottingham, our HQ became Nottingham. But none of us were actually from Nottingham, which is quite funny, really. So Pete and I and Rick, who have been Manchester, Stockport, Bolton, Greater Manchester in the 1980s, well, 70s and 80s. We were all slightly too young for punk. 76 was sort of a year zero for punk rock in the UK. I was nine. So my brother was 16. He was into the Sex Pistols, The Clash, and The Damned and The Ramones, et cetera, et cetera. So we missed all that. But I remember going to my first gig, which was the police in Blackburn somewhere uh, and at whatever age and just thinking, wow. And I was so small, they stood me on the mixing desk. Uh, my little safety pins in my jacket, and I remember just thinking, the next thing, well, the next thing comes along. I don't understand this. I like it. I like the energy. It's a bit noisy. I like it. The next big thing that comes along, I'm going to be on it. So, ten years later, you know, acid house came along. So we had rock and roll, in we had the '60s, late '60s, you know, psychedelic rock, and we had punk rock, and then we had acid house. Um, but we, I would say, growing up in Manchester north of England in the 80s, was just absolutely fucking lucky, as <laughs> anything, because I've reflected on it many times. I'm probably biased, but the music in Manchester in the 80s, we started, oh, you know, we went from Georgia Vision, we had New Order, we had the Stone Roses, we had the Happy Mondays, we had the Buzzcocks, we had the Smiths. I mean, that right there for me is six of the best ten bands ever. And so we were lucky, Manchester was post-industrial, grim, these days it's very different it's a kind of space age city, it was a shithole but much like New York I guess in the 70s it tends to be when somewhere is industrial and you know when somewhere is in decline, suddenly all this music emerges, so that was our background and then I moved to University of Nottingham to study law in 1986 <laughs> fat lord good that was and uh, managed to sort of complete that and I met Rick who was from Stockport, I didn't know him even though we are from 10 miles apart we met and we were both sort of militant vegans and our history was I'm with Pete, we had an unusual musical lineage. We're onto a narco punk, we're into crass, we're into floods, we're into Fagazi and Numies no, no and the Pixies and Sonic Hughes and all that. We were also heavily into hip hop, Public Enemy and Eric B and Rakeem, Sonic and et cetera, et cetera. We've been to a lot of free festivals, uh, there was a big free festival scene in the UK, specifically in the south of England seventies and eighties, post hippie dump. Avon Free Festival, Stonehenge, big free festival. First my first free festival when I was 16 at a little place near Blackburn in the northwest of England. Blew my mind. All my mates went home. I stayed. <laughs> Got told off by my mum. <laughs> a, a harbinger of-, <laughs> of what was to come. <laughs> so, yeah, we, I mean, and we've done a lot of amphetamines. We took a lot of acid. We did all that. Uh, and I just think we just were in the right place at the right time. So Nottingham and... You know, most of the way through a book at the moment, and I've done a bit of research. I think that Graham Park in the UK was probably the first person to play house music to a crowd in public in 86, 87 at the garage in Nottingham. So that brings us there. And then Pete basically followed me down. He came to live with us in Nottingham. So around about 88, 89, we all lived in a very chaotic, anarchic, flat, squat house in Nottingham. And we started doing while. We went to an acid house night at Rock City, uh, and it just changed my life. It was, uh, it was just. That was, I was in September '88, age of 21. We just danced for hours. Uh, there were some DJs from London, and what we did, in effect, was we had tried to apply all that history of anarcho bands, punk rock, crass, flux, and apply it to dance music. And it seemed completely logical to us at the time. Looking back, it was new, I suppose. So the you know, I'm going around, I'm, I'm sort of jumping around a bit here, but hey, so the rave scene, the orbital rave the word rave didn't reappear in the UK until probably
0: 1990. So when you went to this Acid House night, did you already have mixed tapes? Had you already been hearing Acid House? Or was it quite literally like you walk into this club and then you're like, oh my God, this music?
3: It wasn't so much the music. It was the mic- A lot of the music, there's a lot of sort of like uh, Balearic music you know, which is from from Ibiza. You know, thrashing doves and weird stuff, and you know, it was the fact that it was all mixed together. I think I'd heard. It's hard to remember. I think I'd heard. You talk about thirty two years ago, but I think I'd heard acid tracks by <laughs> DJ Pierre. I'd heard some some house music. I'd heard like D Mob. We call it acid. And if you were Jack like you know tracks on the radio, just I mean it was funny because the next day Rick and I went into to select this with a local record store. And so where's the house section? There were three records, four or five records in there. There was no, there wasn't any categories. There was just house. There was like six, five, six records in there. I certainly heard a lot of hip hop by then. We were, Rick and I were hip hop veterans, really. But it, I think it was the fact that it was all mixed together. Before that, I would go to a gig or I'd go to a night and it'd be, there was a gap between the records, wasn't there? You know, it was like, how oh, is this track? you get up, you'd dance around a bit, sit down, drink a lot. This was new. It was the fact that there was six, five, six hours of music mixed together seamlessly. And it was just, you know, we took a load of mushrooms, to be honest. Ecstasy hadn't even arrived in Nottingham at that stage, 88, just to probably arrive a year later. And that was what finished off the deal, really. <laughs> it was the music, it sounded like it was from outer space, but it was just a seamless. So was, that was the radical thing. And then I guess then Ecstasy appeared for us the next summer in 89. And that was that, really.
1: you're listening to rave dad's diary on 90.9 fm cjsw my name is paul brooks and we just heard a clip from the podcast rave to the grave featuring harry diy from diy sound system Listen to the full episode wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to visit RaveToTheGrave.org. Episode 26 of Rave Dad's Diary is coming to a close. Thank you to my guest, Vivian Host, a.k.a. Star Eyes. Rave Dad's Diary is written, produced, and hosted by Paul Brooks. The show is produced on Treaty 7 land at CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary, Alberta. Season 1 theme music is Orchestral Lab by Guido, released on Punch Drunk Records. The Rave Dad's Diary logo is by Homesick. See you next week.